and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast, where you can learn powerful techniques to change the way you feel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski, and joining me here in the Murrieta studio is Dr. David Burns. Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy and the creator of the new teen therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 30 languages. David is currently an emeritus adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hi, Dave. Hi, Rhonda. And hi, Dave. Hey, Rhonda and David. Hi, Dave. Hey, do you go by Dave or only David? Uh, in college, they called me Bernsey. You Burnsy. can call me whatever you want. <laughs> I like that. It's I more like often that Bernsey. David than, than, than yeah. Dave. Yeah. Well, we're going to do another Ask David in this episode, and we're actually kind of following up on the week before, last week's Ask David. But first, um, you know, this podcast is going to be published on December 23rd, so we want to wish people... Happy Hanukkah. Starting on the 22nd, and we're going to wish people a... Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever other holiday you celebrate, we wish you a happy holiday season. Thank you, Rhonda. David, you would make a great Santa. Yeah. <laughs> you mean because I'm getting fat? <laughs> no, you just have the look with the beard and, the and beard everything. And, yeah. yeah. Just, uh... well, actually, my happy, uh, happiest holiday is Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm me too. Because I'm totally with it just, you. it's family, it's food, it's being together. There's no commercial no, push. Yeah, no pressure um, to buy stuff. And... Anyway, so we ended our last podcast, 171, talking about physical pain and if it's true that negative feelings can make physical pain worse. And you told us that really interesting story about how you got hit with the bottle in a bar and the, the comfort that the plastic surgeon gave you um, reduced your your pain from whatever it was to almost down to nothing. And, and when we turned off the recording, Dave... You, know, you had a you great had a really that in an important way. Well, I just, you know, in addition, you know, Rhonda pointed out that the, the doctor that, that was with you was providing empathy, but, you know, also that it, I'm imagining that you felt a lot of fear around, is yeah. this going to be disfiguring, you know, you're yeah. a young man. And, That's um, right. Uh, and that him telling you like, hey, this is routine, whatever, you know, that the fear going away may also have had a lot to do with it too. Yes, the compassion was great, but that's not really what caused the, the pain to disappear. What caused, and I'm so glad you made that point, and the, what my research showed and, and what the fact was, was that my anxiety suddenly went to zero mm -hmm. because I was afraid I was going to be losing my, my teeth. I believed that he'd take care of the broken jaw yeah, uh, and that that was comforting. That reduced my anxiety. This isn't some horrible thing, mm -hmm. uh, but but then also, you know, when he says everything's going to be fine and your teeth are going to be fine, and I just oh, I can relax now. I don't have to worry. Life is good again. Yeah, and and then that's when the pain disappeared. It was the reduction in negative emotions like depression, anxiety, and anger. That reduction in negative feelings can have a powerful effect in reducing, and in some cases, completely eliminating physical pain. Mm -hmm. And just in pushing this one step further, so what What if, let's say the doctor had, what if there had been a, more of a chance you're going to lose your teeth, and the doctor hadn't been able to reassure you on that? Then what I, might be a cognitive <laughs> approach to still get to the, the, the low pain, even though... You're not, you still have some fear. 
I'd have to think about that. That's like a new patient with a new di di different problem, and we'd be doing a daily mood log and looking at cognitive distortions and doing paradoxical agenda setting. One thing I never like to do is to throw a solution at, at a sure. problem. Okay. I, I had a story too. Yes, and yours is a great one. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. all, always kind of the opposite. But, um, well, one of the things you don't know about me is I have a third degree black belt in uh, Shaolin Kempo Karate. And partly that it's a, um, so on my secondary black belt test, which was about uh, probably 10 years ago, um, I had to spar after about six hours of doing pretty hard calisthenics and running and forms. And, you know, I was physically tired and I was probably um, like 49 when I took this test. And, and when it was time to spar, you know, five young men in their early 20s who, who just walked, well, you know, probably woke up and came in and were like all rested and I had to spar them and um and I was I was tired and I I anyway I made some mistakes and somebody knocked me in the nose and um uh broke my nose and I was knocked unconscious and <laughs> I'm not really supposed to talk about it but um anyway when I became conscious again it only lasted a few moments it wasn't like a huge concussion but anyway when I became conscious again I you know it was blood all over the place which of course I didn't see because I'm not looking at myself and I'm like really excited and really happy and eager to finish the test so that I could get my black belt. And I felt no pain. Yeah. And, and nobody around me was looking at me going, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, you're bloody all over the place. They were just like, get up. You know, put your gloves, you know, stop whining. Not that mm -hmm. I was whining, but, you know, get up. Let's go. And, and so I finished the sparring and I got my black belt. And then afterward, my, my second black belt. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, just a clarify. Second degree, yeah. Second degree, yeah. Um, but not your last. Not my right? last, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I went over and looked in the mirror and was like, oh my God. And then I started to feel a pain. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I saw the blood all over my face and I was like, oh my God, my nose is getting anxious. And I started getting anxious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's powerful that the, you know, the brain is far more powerful than we than we think. Yeah. In changing the way we feel uh, physically as as well as as psychologically, and that rapid changes are 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 possible when when you have a sudden change in the way you think and and feel. If only Rhonda had been there on the mean streets of Palo Alto to protect you from that. Yeah. That's right. Well, I'll protect you the next time we're walking yeah. the streets. <laughs> well, here's another question for you. Um, that we didn't get a chance to ask last week. And that is, is it true that emotional trauma affects the brain? And this is from Jackie, who's written before. She's an educational consultant, and she writes, Hi again, Dr. Burns. I love the five secrets and have had great success in my new job by implementing them. I keep listening to all the five secrets podcasts over and over to keep it fresh for me and really love the podcast on advanced techniques. My question today is about how trauma affects the brain. Trauma is the new buzzword in education, and psychologists are creating presentations geared for teachers and other school professionals that claim the trauma-affected brain is altered and cannot learn as easily. They allege imaging technology can prove this. Do you know if PTSD trauma actually impacts a person's ability to learn? I thought that it was the negative thoughts that interfere with attitudes toward learning, not an actual brain impairment. Another term that is used frequently is intergenerational trauma, meaning if my parent experienced trauma, it could be passed down to me and therefore impact my ability to cope with life's stressors. Any thoughts? Any credible research you're aware of? 
In the Ask David episode, could you also include your opinion on how adverse childhood experiences impact people's mental health and ability to cope? There are a range of experiences cited in studies from moving around a lot in childhood to witnessing a murder to molestation. After listening to your podcast, episode 147, when Gary talked about the PTSD he experienced, I was satisfied with the effectiveness of team to treat trauma rapidly. But then I remembered a documentary I had seen about quote unquote feral children who were extremely neglected as children. And I wondered if there are some cases where the psychology or the potential of a person is forever impacted by an adverse childhood experience. Your take? And then she's an educational consultant for what we have disguised as the mountaintop school division. And those are cool questions, and I'll babble a little about each of the three things, and you guys can throw in your your two cents worth on it. Um, I'm kind of have pretty strong negative emotion, emotional reactions, anger and frustration and annoyance when people throw around buzzwords. Uh, like trauma is the new buzzword in education, uh, Jackie writes, and and that somehow this affects your brain, which is altered. You cannot learn as easily, and that Im- alleged imaging technology can can prove this. Just a- as a physician, I'm a board certified psychiatrist. I'm certified by the Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, and. While I'm all in favor of, of research, when I read claims like this, uh, they, they, I, f- I find them personally offensive and, and not consistent with my knowledge or, or my experience. Uh, I mean, certainly if someone's had severe trauma, they've, say, been in uh, Afghanistan and a bomb blows up and they get, you know, a, a brain syndrome, uh, they're knocked unconscious and they're they're getting you know br- brain damage. That, that 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 that's certainly a physical physical injury. Uh, but uh, people are just talking about traumatic experiences growing up. And in and what I have all I've trained treated so many trauma patients in my career. And the the interesting thing is, of all the patients I've ever treated, trauma patients are by far the easiest to treat and the quickest to learn the things that I'm trying to teach. I, I did a trauma workshop the last several years all over the U.S. and Canada, and I probably treated 40 or 50 people live in the work in each workshop. I treated a live volunteer, and they all had had severe tra- trauma, it, rapes, hor- multiple horrible uh, auto a- accidents. I, I had a woman who was uh, kidnapped by a, by a serial killer you know, very, pretty extreme kinds of things. And every single person recovered uh, pretty much completely from their depression and anxiety in a single therapy session lasting roughly an hour and a half to, to, two, to two hours. So I just, I just haven't seen this kind of claim in reality and working in the trenches with massive numbers of, of trauma, trauma patients. But also... To tell someone you have a trauma-affected brain that is altered and cannot learn as easily would seem to me to create a kind of a negative mindset on the on the part of the uh, on the part of the student, which which do- doesn't sound very encouraging to, to to me. Well, I think she's referring to the study that Kaiser did in the 1990s, where they asked all their patients 
or they um, during a certain time period about the negative experiences that they had, they had experienced. Yeah. And then um, compared them to and just like she said, they could have been, you know, witnessing a murder or your parents' divorce or frequent moves or or other. I think there's 18 identified yeah. um, adverse childhood experiences, and then they're they're correlated with poor physical and mental health in adulthood. Like the more ACEs you've experienced, the worse your your outcome is yeah. in terms of your physical and mental health. But what and then you know what's also it's also in the news, and I don't know if she's from California. I don't think she is. But Nadine Burke Harris, who, you know, our governor Newsom appointed the first state surgeon general. There's a federal yeah. surgeon general. She's the only surgeon general for the state. And she's a pediatrician who's done a lot of research on adult, I mean, um, adverse childhood uh, experiences. And she is advocating now that any, anytime someone goes to an appointment, a medical appointment, that they get screened for what they've experienced, mm -hmm. which provides a lot of information to the medical provider that they're seeing. And what you're saying is, because you've experienced and, and like somebody was like, oh, you've experienced all these, you know, traumatic experience things. I mean, you're doomed. Yeah. Exactly. And what you're saying yeah. is, yeah, and you've in, had these experiences. In my experiences the more you're trauma not doomed. you've had, the easier it's going to be to get you to a state yeah. of joy and euphoria yeah. and get over the, the depression that and anxiety. I did a, an informal study at Stanford when I was validating my easy diagnostic system. And we, we studied 178 consecutively treated, uh, admitted patients to the psychiatric inpatient unit. And, and one of the scales I had to validate was that my PTSD scale, which was one of the screening scales, because we're trying to assign diagnoses to the patients. And, and on the page before they filled out the, the, the symptoms of, of PTSD, I asked, you know, if you had any severe significant traumas in, in, in your life. And I thought, you know, a few patients would have some ultra severe trauma. And I don't think there was a single patient that didn't list at least traumatic, 20 traumatic events. Right, and, yeah. and it wasn't true that there's some subset of patients that have had some severe trauma. All human beings have had trauma. Now I've had two of the worst traumatic events in my life in the last four weeks. Uh, but very disturbing, very disturbing things have happened to me. And I'm not pleading to be a victim and they both things turned out great and one of them led to a wonderful deepening of a relationship with a, with a colleague uh, but but they were very very painful and, and disturbing to me but to me this gives us opportunities for growth for learning for developing greater for developing greater intimacy and 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 also I, I just you know I started my career as a full-time researcher I do <coughs> reviews are sent to me from research journals to say, is this article worthy of publication? And when I see research reported by the media and get, gets popular, I, I and I, I shouldn't say this because I'll sound like a grouch, but I never ask the question, what does this research mean? Uh, mean? What's the interpretation? I ask the question, was this research worth publishing? Mm -hmm. Is it validly done? And the answer to that, 99% of the time, it's no. Wow. It's, it, it's, and that's frustrating to me. Yeah. Because people, I just want to cite research. My wife, who's way smarter than I am, is a PhD in clinical psychology and is the most brilliant Aside from yourself, the most brilliant psychologist <laughs> I've ever and Jill. And, and, Love and, it. And Jill, yeah, <laughs> encountered. And I asked her, 
the same question and she said she too, uh, she doesn't follow research anymore because she doesn't think there's any valid research in, in our field, hard, mm. hardly any at, at all. And that's probably a slight overstatement, but uh, but I just, I'm tired of people throwing away these, out these buzzwords, you know, yeah, thinking, I, pretending they know something. But I really like what you're saying that we all experience negative experiences and it's not an automatic like death sentence or like automatic, yeah. oh, you're going to have a horrible adulthood because yeah. it's, it's hopeful that there's, there's positive results can, can yeah, still occur. Yeah, powerful tools to, to change the way you think and change the way you feel. What, what's your, have you ever had any uh, traumatic events, Dave? <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking a, a long time ago, I took this two day workshop um, <clears throat> that involved, where it was a number of people and people were, would share about things about, uh, that had happened with them and there was a lot of talk about your what happened in childhood and the and the gamut of things that people shared was from oh, someone yeah. whose you know father didn't wasn't maybe as loving as they would have yeah. preferred to someone who was like raped and molested by their uncle or whatever yeah what was interesting was that the level of trauma quote unquote yeah. that people experienced seemed to be completely into like that person who had the what you, comparatively minor trauma would have experienced the same level of of emotional disruption as the other person. It was it was just amazing to me how like the the event had nothing to do with the. I love what, what you're saying. When when I was uh, in Philadelphia, I had a hand injury playing tennis, and it was wrongly put in a cast for six months because this orthopedic guy who wasn't very good diagnosed. A fracture that didn't exist, mm. and and when he took the cast off, I had what's called reflex sympathetic dystrophy or ref, regional pain syndrome, which is supposed to be a hopeless disorder. It's excruciating pain, and I had almost complete paralysis in my hand. The bones were paper thin. Oh no! And it's this horrible disorder. And the only hopeful treatment is constant movement really 18 to 24 hours a day of therapy. I even had to have therapy when I was asleep. Oh, wow. I had to put my hand in a machine that kept moving it. And I had to, even when I was seeing patient, I had to be doing exercises to, to bring it back. But it was such an interesting experience. And then I'd go to the hand gymnasium at, at the Penn Hospital uh, and, and do hand work, workouts with other patients with hand injuries. And it was so interesting that there were people there with the most grotesque, hand injuries. Unbelievable. There was a woman, elderly woman, who, who redoes paintings. You know, she restores these super expensive paintings. Her hands were so destroyed by arthritis, she could barely move them, her fingers, and she was still doing this fantastic work. And she was just filled with joy. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there was a, a, a boy I, I was working with, you know, working out on machines. And I said, oh, yeah, did, what, you know, what, what are, where are you from? He said, oh, I go to high school here in South Philadelphia. And I said, what are you hoping to be when you grow up? He said, oh, I want to be an NBA player. I love basketball. I'm going to make it in the NBA. And I said, oh, well, what, uh, what, what injury are you here for? He says, well, my hands were cut off in shop. And, and they threw his hands in, in a bucket of ice water and rushed him to Penn, and they had just sewn his hands back on. Oh, my goodness. And he was just totally happy, and he says, I'm learning, I'm starting to move my fingers now, and, and, and stuff like, like that, and worse. I saw people even worse than, than that who, who were so happy, a professional famous skier, and his hand had been run over and smashed flat. 
Wow. And, uh, and so he, he was going to have some thing attached to his arm that the ski pole could, could, could go. Yeah. But they were optimistic, joyful people. But then there were these people were whiners and complainers with really minor inj injuries. So it's exactly, exactly what, what you're saying, that the attitude was, was everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, my first job out of graduate school, I worked at San Francisco's Rape Trauma Center, where someone would, adults would be raped, called the police, and they would be in our yeah. center. And th th that happened there too. Like if yeah. somebody mm. thought, I did everything I could to protect myself, they, and they felt better, they felt good about themselves and what they did, and they healed super fa much faster yeah, right. than someone who said, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, da, yeah. da, da. I, yeah. and then questioned themselves and, yeah. and felt badly about themselves, yeah. not just the event. Finally, I'll just mention this term, intergenerational trauma, meaning if your parent experienced trauma, well, all parents in the United States and uh, Guatemala, according to the Buddha 2,500 years ago, have experienced a minimum of 30 traumatic events. All humans get traumatized all the time. So if your parents had trauma, it'll be passed down to me and therefore impact my ability to cope with life stressors. That is the goofiest thing. Again, it's so offensive. Oh, intergenerational trauma. Oh, you're inheriting trauma from your parents. You're doomed. It's so stupid. I went to a... a but wait, 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 wait. I mean, I mean, I'm not a research expert in any way whatsoever, but there is research, which I shouldn't cite, and I don't know, where like people who um, came out of the Holocaust, who survived a concentration camp, sure. and then had children, their children had some of the same symptoms that they had, even though they were, you know, born without sure. ever experiencing that kind of thing. We all have stories and our stories affect us and, and, and that's that's absolutely true. But this, ooh, you have intergenerational trauma, you know, that this is gonna have this effect on, on you. It just it just it just kinda of, I can see that really bugs you. Mental garbage to yeah. to me. I, I, I went you have to stay humble. I, I went to a workshop <laughs> in Canada and it, it was just blow away. I thought, oh these people are so impressed. I did such a great job and these two women offered to drive me to the airport and they were so excited about my workshop. I said, oh yeah, thank you, I'd love it. And then they were saying, oh, your workshop was so great and you're so great. And, and oh, oh, by the way, have you heard about uh, this uh, reincarnation therapy that we're doing? And uh, yes, oh, it's, you need to add it to your team CBT. You see, we hypnotize our patients and bring them back to their previous lives. Wow. And, and it's so great. And I had a patient yesterday who discovered she'd actually been Cleopatra and how that's affected her sexual life. And so I was like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> you know, people are just believing goofy things. And these are mental health professionals. And I don't mean to be critical of them, although I certainly do mean to be critical <laughs> yeah. of them. It's just I, 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 one of these days we're going to develop a science of psychotherapy and get away from these fads and these cults and these buzz, buzzwords mm -hmm. and get down to science. So, well, you've already, you already are. That's I mean, what that's we're what, trying to Yes, we are trying to do. Yeah. Testing. I mean, I could see a mechanism, with, I mean, the intergenerational thing where it's a learn. I mean, thought, how we think about things can be a learned behavior. So Absolutely. Like if, if your parent is in a bad car accident and then is very anxious and yes, like to drive sure. or whatever that. Teach child, you to be anxious. Yeah, they will teach you to be anxious. Absolutely. Yeah. And our little cat, I mean, certainly if you've had bad uh, experiences, you could be a little feral 
kid to a certain extent, and my yeah. wife and I adopt feral cats, and, and some of them are very timid and afraid of noises, and when they first come to us, they try to bite us, and they've been had bad experiences, and they growl, and, and then we, we love them and give them Team CBT and turn them into <laughs> loving little, little people, which always seem, seems to work, but, but of, co of course our experiences can, can affect us. Okay, so we only have 10 minutes, but we have two more questions. Okay. So here's the next question. Dr. Burns, what's displacement? Um, is it true that you have to have a good cry when something traumatic happens? That's the, that's the umbrella question. Hi there again. I've been practicing Team CBT for a year, while at the same time studying Dr. Gordon Neufeld's theories on the need for tears of futility for true healing, including adaptation, maturation, and development of resilience. He states that if we only work on the cognitive level, we risk just displacing the symptoms in our clients and they would miss out on maturation and adaptation. I am wondering if you have ever seen a displacement of the symptoms in treating your patients with Team CBT. In most of the live sessions I've seen with you, you seem to have this gift or skill to make, this, to make it safe for the client to let the tears flow. And that this often seems to be the moment when a breakthrough is about to happen. So I wonder if you think the client needs to shed tears or at least feel the feelings of futility or true sadness before we should move forward toward methods in addition to getting perfect empathy scores. And what role do you think tears play in the healing process? Thanks. Well, I'll make my Millennia. contribution short, although I have a bunch of bullet points for the, the show notes. But I think that tears can be wonderful in therapy, and they show that the patient uh, tr trusts the therapists. And, and uh, during the empathy phase of team T CBT, I think it's great if, if the tears flow to, to develop a bond uh, between the therapist and patient. And when you cry, you're saying to the therapist, I, I trust you and I'm willing to show my vulnerability. So I, I think that that's great. I, I always get a little suspicious when people say, this thing has to happen in certain kind of patients because everyone has a different a different path to to enlightenment and, and I work with the individual not some some rule book that says this or that has to happen at this or that 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 phase of therapy and I've had plenty of patients who recovered completely without some uh, you know tearful phase in in, in the treatment what, what but I also thoughts? thinking that she you know she's kind of buying I don't know but it sounds like she's kind of buying into a myth that when you do cognitive behavioral therapy it's only about your thoughts and we ignore feelings yeah but team CBD is Which a is so nonsensical. It's not, and you know it's all it's interwoven your feelings and your yeah, thoughts absolutely yeah the the feelings are crucial and in the empathy phase yeah. you're you're trying to encourage the patient to share feelings and and, and to acknowledge the feelings and not to help them and to, and to be them with, with them. I treated a woman uh, that I, we might have talked about on a previous podcast, but she, she'd had horrible trauma for decades. And just during the empathy phase, I almost didn't have to say anything. And she, she talked and cried and, and we connected and that, that there was just beautiful bonding that, that happened. Did that cure her? No. Crying is never going to cry, cure anyone of, of anything, but it, it allows you to use powerful tools that can, can cure the patient, but you need more than just empathy and tears to Yeah, because you're not a robot. Life. The therapist isn't a robot. No. You can't, a patient can't come to you and say, oh, I need help with XYZ, and you go, okay, here's the formula. Tell me about your negative thoughts. It's all over. Let's go do some ex exposure, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I mean, it is about yeah. trusting you, and, and yeah. sometimes 
you trust someone after you've sat in the room and cried with them. And sometimes yeah. you trust someone if you sit in the room and just talk about, you know, what it is you're experiencing. Yeah. And then, you know, that trust and that bond yeah. between therapist and patient can lead to the other work. Ther good therapy is magic and good magic is multi-layered. Exactly. And if simplistic formulas are pretty yeah. much always going to fall right. short. Dave? I, I don't have much to add other than I imagine that, um, you know, when I've... <clears throat> I don't cry very much, um, which is probably not great. You know, I think that it, I mean, I think that it, there's an honest. If it's true, if it's like you're saying, there's an honesty to it. I remember I I dated a woman once who who cried not all the time, but sometimes, and and it was always touching for me because it, yeah. it was um, it wasn't it wasn't histrionic. She was doing it, you know, like there was something. It was just an honest expression of how she was feeling, yeah. and I, I appreciated that. Yeah, I love that. And and also, some people have raised the question, you know, can a therapist cry during a session? And we had a, a Stanford resident, a brilliant guy, an MD, PhD, who came to the Tuesday group once, and he had give, led a group at, at the VA hospital, and the veterans started to open up about the things they'd experienced in, in Vietnam or Afghanistan. And he, he said he heard things that just blew his mind that was, was so horrible and, and tears started going down his cheeks mm. and then he came to the, the Tuesday group and, and he was all ashamed of himself and, and saying maybe a therapist sh shouldn't cry and, and I said I, in, in my opinion what you just described was the greatest way a, a therapist could be and I just bow down down to you that this showing showing your tears and and it made a great impact on the group too i mean they really appreciated it. a lot of them veterans started crying but emotion emotion is is nothing not, not something to be afraid of but something to be to be cherished and sometimes tears can be a form of enlightenment i think that sadness without distorted thoughts if you if sadness comes from valid thoughts it, it's it's a form a form of enlightenment or spirituality to, to to cry, but most of the time when people cry, they're having contaminated by distorted thoughts like guilt and I should have done this and I'm angry about my dead father because of this or that, and that 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 takes away the uh, the, the positive dimension. That that's that fortunately that's easy to treat too, but but I think. You know, when I cry personally, I'm I'm just so grateful. Uh, okay, well, thank you, thank you both for that. Here's our last question: Why does avoidance make anxiety worse? Hi, Dr. Burns. I love your show and your work so much. I can't wait to buy Feeling Great. There's a question I've had for about three years that I've badly wanted to get my head wrapped around. It's in regard to something I've heard you say, but I've heard others say so too. For example, on feeling good on the feeling good episode one sixteen, um, at, at about twenty eight minutes into the episode, someone said most experts in exposure therapy or behavior therapy say that attempts to control your symptoms of anxiety is the cause of all anxiety. Why is this? I understand if you push through an anxiety, you can learn whether it's warranted or not. But how is trying to avoid an anxiety actually the cause of all anxiety? I want to be able to understand it for when I feel myself trying to move away from social anxiety, 
I can understand at a moment's notice why doing so actually is the cause of all my anxiety. To be able to skewer through Just the rationalizations. Just to skewer the rationalizations. Oh, to, be, to skewer the rationalizations in my mind of why I shouldn't push through. Thank you, David. Best regards, Mark. Well, I'm eager to get you folks' uh, th thoughts about this. The, when you confront your fear, it, it's kind of based on the, the teachings from that goofy Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> that, Sorry. That, that when you confront your worst fear, you discover the monster has no teeth and you go into a, a state of euphoria, really, uh, be, because you find out what you're afraid of. It wasn't worth you know, it, it, there, there was nothing, nothing there, and it, it's a spiritual principle at the at the core of Buddhism. It's also at the core of Christianity, uh, probably Jewish religion as well. You know, walk through the valley of the shadow of death; I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. These are all spiritual, spiritual messages. But when you turn away from the anxiety, see, anxiety is caused by distorted thoughts about reality. Mm -hmm. So when you turn away. When you run away, your your distorted thoughts mushroom, and there's nothing, no reality to to stop them. And I can give you a quick example of that. That you know, when I was young, I wasn't afraid of heights, but my mother had the fear of heights. And then, as a teenager, out of the blue, I developed this intense fear of heights, and I have no idea where it came from. And then I got over it. Sophomore year in high school, one a teacher had me stall, stand at the top of a tall ladder until my anxiety disappeared. And after 15 minutes, the anxiety disappeared. And, and then after that, for years, I had no fear of heights. In fact, when I was doing construction labor, I used to go up at the top of tall buildings we were building with the wheelbarrow of cement, go up in the elevator and then push it across a girder. I can't believe wow. I, I did that. And it was, yeah. I thought, oh, this is so much fun uh, and, and stuff like that. And then uh, I went to college and medical school and started living with Melanie. Then we got married and was living my life. And and I never encountered height. I, I wasn't avoiding it, but it, I had no purpose ever to climb up to the top of something. And then I took my kids to Havasupai Canyon one spring. Melanie had to study for her PhD stuff and it was spring break and I said, let's go to Arizona. And she said, why don't you take the kids? I've got to study and finish my PhD and everything like this. So I took the kids and we drove to Havasupai Canyon where I used to go all the time when I was young. And it's, an, it's a part of the Grand Canyon. It's a phenomenally beautiful place. It used to be more beautiful. Now it's gotten commercialized, sadly. But there's this beautiful blue-green, you have to go down a cliff and then a, a, an eight or nine mile trail to get down to the village where there's about 300 Havasupai Indians living. And when I went there, there was no electricity or anything. Huh. And, uh, and, the, and this blue-green water comes out of the soil and forms a beautiful river. And, and the blue-green stuff precipitates. So this, it's, although it's a wide, becomes a fast-moving river. It's, it's like a swimming pool. It's all smooth and just like a swimming pool. It's unbelievable. Nice. And then we used to go down two miles beyond the village and climb down this cliff. And then we could dive. There was a waterfall there, and we would dive under through the waterfall, go up behind it. Nice. And so we got close to there, 
and I st- my fear of heights started to come back. And, and I told the kids, why don't you go down? I'll wait for you up here. Because <laughs> you have to kind of go down a rope. Yeah, and I, I got right. to think, oh, my God, I, I don't think I could do that anymore. And what if I fall? And so it, it took them about an hour to go down and go swimming and talk to the Indian kids who were down there and then climb back with this rope. And as I sat there, my fear of heights escalated to levels I never have imagined before. And, and it's because I was just thinking just, oh my God, it's, you imagine falling and over cliffs and stuff and beating up on myself that I hadn't, hadn't confronted the fear. And that, that would be a good example of how when you turn away from the monster, the monster becomes vastly more powerful. Yeah. So does that answer that at yeah. all? But what, is, what are you guys' thoughts about why exposure is so important, why avoiding your fears makes things worse? Maybe you have an idea about this. Well, I, I appreciate the question, and I'll say I'm I'm still I'm still working on this. I had you know when you were you were talking to me about this on a on a hike not that not that long ago with some decisions that I'm making and had had fears about and um, yeah it's it's uh, and you experience that intensification when yeah. avoiding confronting your fear yeah and in the end I and it was I, horrible it was horrible and in the end I I didn't actually take I still back down yeah uh, and and <laughs> made everything worse yeah so I I, I, I my personal experience is that it, it absolutely it, it, whatever the reason is <laughs> it, it, it does, that's what it, happens yeah. well there's a tremendous lucid and amazing explanation for why avoidance makes anxiety worse and Rhonda will now explain uh, what it is <laughs> <laughs> well because it, it creates the thought of or the fear it keeps that alive. It, it, yeah. it keeps that alive. Yeah. Like I work with a lot of kids who are estranged from a, their one of their divorced parents, and then they start making up stories about their parent that may not be true. And because mm. they're they're like, oh, I'm not going to see him. I'm mad at him or her. And and you know they did, you know they blah 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 blah. And I said, well, you know you might want to talk to him about it. No, no. If I no no. And and so the anxiety about meeting their parent or making the decision or going in the height. And you know it. You know, on a, if you graph it, it just keeps going up and up yeah. and up and up and up. The distortions continue. Yeah, the distortions continue. To they, smash them. And they really, they live so powerfully within us. And then once you actually confront what it is that you're afraid of, maybe it'll spike the anxiety because you're you're experiencing something that you've had all these fears about for the longest time. But eventually, yeah. you know, you you know, there'll be a baseline where you're like, oh yeah, maybe it's not so bad. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. And then eventually it'll just, you know, kind of poop out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not the right word. Yeah, right. Uh, well, pooping <laughs> well, is fun, but yeah. I mean, will just extinguish it. it, then your negative just, thoughts will just, just, will just mushroom. Yeah. But the real challenge, I think, is, I mean, that's a great, that's a great metaphor. You standing on the top of the ladder in, what was it, seventh grade or whatever. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, once you Ninth got grade. it. Ninth grade. No, tenth grade. Oh, tenth grade. It wasn't like you got to the top of the ladder and they went away. You had to stick it out, right? I mean, they're probably, yeah. you probably really wanted yeah. to go down. But trust yeah. was important because I, yeah. I, I, I trusted Mr. Krishak, who was standing at yeah. the bottom of the ladder, and say, well, right. he knows about this stuff, and so I'll do what he's telling me to do. And then it, and, and then it worked. I, doing it alone, it would have been very uh, difficult, if not impossible, yeah. because it but was But it does just, take a little, a level, maybe not a little, but it takes a, it takes a lot of courage to yeah. face it. Because it, you know, anxiety and the fear might spike, but you have yeah. to trust the person that you're with, or that's, or this process to understand that it'll eventually yeah. extinguish. 
Well, that was a great question, Mark. I think actually this is Mark Samuelson to, to use his last, last name. And thank you, Mark, for uh, you've sent us other really cool questions too, and we've got them on future Ask David's. Uh, two quick statements here. One, uh, if you like the podcast, please uh, tell your, your friends, your customers, your colleagues, your family members about it, because we're trying to expand our, our audience. And then secondly, uh, my next workshop uh, in 2020 will be on February 9th, and it's on high-speed methods to resu- res- reduce resistance and boost motivation. This will be a one-day program designed for mental health professionals to teach these powerful new resistance-busting or resistance-melting techniques that can really transform your, your clinical work. And that's, that's one day. It'll be in Palo Alto. You can come in person in Palo Alto, but and that's the coolest way to come because we've got great food and there's a small group in person. There's great comradeship. Uh, but it'll sell out early, uh, so register early if you want to come in person. You can also come online. Uh, Mike Christensen from Canada uh, 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 handles the online people. We'll have tons of helpers for the small group exercises online. You'll hear my wonderful colleague, Dr. Jill Levitt, who will be co-leading this workshop with me. So we, we hope you, you can join us and go to my website, feelinggood.com. That's www.feelinggood, F-E-E-L-I-N-G-G-O-O-D, feelinggood.com, and go to the workshop tab, and you can uh, click on the registration tab and and get all the details. So hope, hope you can join us. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Dave and David. Thank you, Rhonda. Thanks, Rhonda and David. Thank you, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Byrne's website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode under the podcast page. You will also find archives of previous episodes and many resources for therapists and non-therapists. We welcome your comments and questions. If you want to support the show, please share the podcast with people who might benefit from it. You could also go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. The theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donsel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.